0: Welcome to Freedom of Species. Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. We are dedicated to raising awareness about issues concerning animals. This includes animal advocacy, activism, protection, conservation, and importantly, appreciation. We are broadcasting from 3CR Studios in Melbourne, Australia. Live streaming and recent podcasts are available via the 3CR website and all podcasts are available from the Freedom of Species website and iTunes. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Emma Townsend. The Global Food Forum was held in Melbourne this week, the tagline being Australia's place at the table. There were international bigwigs in dairy, meat processing, farm machinery, feed represented. Our Agricultural Minister Barnaby Joyce was there. The United Nations has stated the world must move away from animal products. I quote, a global shift towards a vegan diet is vital to save the world from hunger, fuel poverty and the worst impacts of climate change. Unfortunately, I doubt that that is being discussed at the Global Food Forum. Let's face it, if we were serious about climate change and feeding the world's hungry and decreasing disease, animal agriculture will not be centre of place at this table. Helping to influence a world away from the animal agribusiness centric view is an organisation called Brighter Green. Brighter Green is a public policy action tank that works to raise awareness of and encourage policy action on issues that span the environment, animals and sustainability. We chat with Brighter Greens executive director, Mia McDonald, about world agribusiness and finance, using China as the example. We also talk about activism in China, a bit about Brighter Greens Chinese documentary film called What's for Dinner that is making great waves. And we also speak about that headline that raced around social media last week, Fed's vegan diet best for planet regarding the US dietary guidelines. Mia MacDonald herself has had vast experience working in a range of international non-governmental organisations. That includes the Ford Foundation, the World Wildlife Fund, Green Belt Movement, Sierra Club and Save the Children, as well as several United Nations agencies. Mia is also a senior fellow of the World Watch Institute and on the board of Farm Sanctuary Food Empowerment Project. I'm sure I've missed out a few roles there that Mia has in her spare time. Thank you so much for joining us today on Freedom of Species, Mia. You're involved with a lot of different organisations and have had vast experience in dealing with issues of the environment, gender, sustainable development, women's rights, gender equality, to name a few. Can you tell us why it was necessary to develop the organisation called Brighter Green? Yes, thank you for asking that question. So Brighter Green began about seven years ago.
1: And it was something I had thought about for a little bit of time. And as you mentioned, based on my background, I had done quite a lot of international development work and had worked in a number of different sectors. And since you've laid them out, I don't need to repeat those. But I saw a certain number of issues where it struck me there was confluence between environmental issues and issues that one might think of as animal rights or animal welfare issues. And yet I saw very little work being done on those issues in a global context. And particularly, I would say, environmentalists not really grappling with one of the big issues of our time, you know, the growth of meat and dairy and other animal product consumption and production and the ecological impacts of that. So deforestation, water pollution, species displacement... And then, of course, climate change. And it struck me that there really was the need for an organization, a policy organization, and we call Brighter Green a public policy action tank, that would do very credible research at the intersection of a number of these sectors, environment, animals, global development, equity, sustainability, and would also seek to educate And conscientized policymakers, and from there, the media and the general public. And so it was really because I didn't see another policy group doing this kind of work. And it felt to me that so many of the key issues facing us, you know, as a species and as a planet, are really issues that cross fields. So you can't say, I'm only doing deforestation, I don't care about gender, or I don't care about the livestock sector, that there are really very important intersections and that those need to be addressed uh, holistically. Now, it does make for a mouthful, as you hear me even trying to explain it, and it does make for some complexity in how one does the work and how one seeks to reach policymakers. But I actually uh, think that it it really is a way to get to some better solutions, some new thinking, some outside-of-the-box thinking, and some coalitions that can, you know, if we believe in citizen power, and I do, uh, can really bring about some changes in in what we take now as business
0: as usual. You said business as usual. And for me, reading Brighter Greens work, it kind of runs parallel or is the other side, and definitely not in the shadow, but we have a global network of food agribusiness uh, in, in bed politically with a lot of governments. We hear about food security in the mainstream media and at agribusiness conferences. They're harnessing their own markets, basically. Can you talk about Who are the major players and powers that are at that negotiating table at this present time of international food business and networks?
1: Yeah, I can. I mean, it is a big world and a big field. And I think there are a number of different conference arenas, Emma. So there are, you know, climate conferences. There are, as you say, conferences about food security and agriculture, the future of agriculture. So there are a number of different um, places where some of these discussions are happening but it is the case that there are large multinational agribusinesses, and traditionally those have been uh, developed, grown in what we can call industrialized countries, right? We sometimes say the global north, so places like the US, places like Europe, places like Australia and New Zealand. And some of the names I think will be you know familiar to your listeners, uh, Cargill, ADM, Monsanto, Louis Dreyfus is a big one. Uh, Fonterra is a New Zealand-based, one of the largest dairy processors in the world, Um, and there are a number of others that we could we could talk about. Uh, There is actually now the largest beef processing conglomerate in the world is a Brazilian-based company called JBS, and they, you know, in the last several years, bought a number of other companies in the meat and feed sector, so have become extremely big. In China, there are a number of state-owned corporations that are really agribusinesses. Um, and they call these state-owned corporations that have very strong relationship with the central government in China, dragon head firms. And there's quite a big one called Kafco as uh, the acronym in China. So they are private businesses. But as you indicated in your question, they often operate with very strong support from governments you know elected governments or in the case of China, not elected governments but governments that are in place and the governments have an interest and, and we could probably talk about why that is and why that's a huge problem in these corporations growing, expanding, finding new markets, uh, export markets, domestic markets, and really um, helping them in terms of policy, in terms of fiscal policy, tax policy, regulation, environmental regulation, to create a very favorable environment for these corporations. And one of the ways these corporations have sought to burnish their image uh, over time, but I'd say probably more in recent years, is to uh, give the impression and, and have public relations to say they are really just trying to bring about food security. You know, there's a growing population in the world. People want to eat more processed foods, more animal-based foods. There's a need for large-scale agriculture and that these corporations are simply doing that and providing that. And therefore, in their view and the view of the governments that support them, uh, improving the world in certain ways. Now, I think there's also a recognition even among some of these corporations that that is public relations, that that is marketing, but nonetheless it helps them to maintain their power to, I think, in some ways deflect public scrutiny and to expand in their size and reach and
0: impact. So they can be using this false uh, noble banner of feeding the world to further their own interest. And you touched on there that governments subsidise these agribusinesses to expand. Can you also comment on the financing aspect of, like, the World Bank backing these developments?
1: Yes, I can. I mean, there is, as you indicated, there are... Subsidies, you know, I should just talk about that for a minute. I mean, in the U.S., there are subsidies for production of grain, and it's often feed grain. So it's used in livestock production. It's also used sometimes in biofuel production. And so there are, you know, cash payments to support the harvesting, the cultivation, and then harvesting of of large swaths of corn and soy. Monocultures have a lot of negative effects on biodiversity water because of chemicals and fertilizers used in those crops and obviously crowd out more diverse and and perhaps more climate resilient crops. The World Bank and the IFC are another area. And and there is a complexity to it because from time to time, the World Bank will say, and there have been some papers written to this effect produced by the bank, you know, we really want to help promote more sustainable food systems we see that there are problems with a factory farm-based model that's very common in the U.S. and and also in Australia and Europe and and other regions. And we want to focus on more holistic kinds of agriculture. Now, at the same time, the IFC, which is a private sector arm of the World Bank, so the IFC was established to invest in private businesses and to lend its clout and money, but often it's more clout because the money is, is sometimes not a huge amount of money, but to get deals off the ground in a whole range of areas, principally focused on the developing world. And of course, China, which we lump in with the developing world, but obviously China is you know, the world's second largest, if not the first uh, economy in the world now. So the IFC... Again, from time to time, I've even been told by people who work there, you know, we're not going to invest in these large industrial animal agriculture operations. Yet there are still investments made, certainly in Chinese agribusiness, agribusinesses in Brazil, and other regions where we could really say these are not helpful to the local food economy, the local food system, certainly not to a global environmental agenda nor a food security agenda because as i'm sure you know the resources required to produce animal based foods almost you know in terms of every uh, kind of food the resources for the animal based foods far outweigh those required to produce plant based foods mm-hmm. so in terms of a real food security if that was the real mission one would decrease the amount of animal-based foods and really seek to increase plant-based crops and uh, a diverse range of plant-based crops. So there is that factor, although I would say to your listeners that while the World Bank and the IFC are important because they set almost a standard or a pace in a way in terms of the global economy, the amounts of money that they put into promoting global animal agriculture in an industrial form, it is dwarfed by the private corporations and even the private sector investors. So just one more example, that we have a very large investment bank here in the United States called Goldman Sachs, probably as familiar to some uh, people in other parts of the world as well. You know, they have invested... In Chinese factory farms, in poultry production, very large scale, very industrial, very exploitative of the animals, the workers, the environment. And yet Goldman Sachs, it does have sustainability criteria. You know, it will tell the world we're really trying to green our operations. And yet those sustainability uh, commitments never seem to mix with an interest in making money from animal agriculture. And obviously... To my mind and many other analysts, that's an important contradiction and a a significant
0: contradiction. You are listening to 3CR 855, Freedom of Species. We are speaking with Mia MacDonald, Executive Director of the New York-based public policy action tank, Brighter Green. Brighter Green works at the intersection of issues related to the environment, animals and global development. Mm You state in the policy paper on the Brighter Green website, what the Chinese eat and how China produces its food affects not only China but also the world. Food security is meat to them. They have stockpiles of pigs as countries stock oil. Can you elaborate more on that statement, that you know how, how they eat and produce their food affects not only them but also the world?
1: Yeah, I will. And that's a very good question. One of the main things about China, as obviously most of us know, it is the most populous country in the world. So there are 1.3 billion people approximately. And feeding China's people has been an ongoing preoccupation of governments in China, emperors. You know, it's been a preoccupation for hundreds of years, because it's a lot of people in a country that, yes, has a number of natural resources, But it requires a lot of food to feed those people. So what has changed in the last probably 30 years, 35 years since China kind of opened to the world? One change has been an increased production, but also consumption of animal-based foods, principally pork. China raises between 500 million and 700 million pigs a year. As well as billions of chickens, which at some level the numbers are shocking. At another level, not entirely surprising because the U.S. produces as many as nine billion chickens a year for mostly our own domestic consumption, and our population is about um, a quarter of what is in China. So the chi- you know as the Chinese economy has grown. As a history of famine has really imprinted itself on the Chinese people, you know, to this day, uh, there's more demand for what are seen as higher value, higher quality foods and more supply. You know, both, as I mentioned before, state owned corporations, as well as global agribusiness. You know, a a KFC is very common in Chinese cities. Uh, McDonald's is opening a new restaurant almost every day in China as we speak big grain producers, Cargill, uh, others, want to sell to China. Why it matters for the world, so it obviously matters for those animals, for the people in China who also are experiencing water pollution from livestock operations, you know, public health effects from overconsumption of a more Western-style diet. But what has been happening again, in the past, let's say, 5 to 10 years is to feed those animals that China is raising in, in enormous numbers. It is looking for the components of livestock feed, and that's principally soy, soy meal, as well as corn. And so China is buying growing uh, and vast quantities of those On global markets. So, just one one example I'll give is in Latin America, where soy has really expanded, whether it's Argentina, Paraguay, Brazil, into forested areas, grassland, a whole range of ecosystems. China is buying, uh, in some cases, and let's say in the case of Brazil, more than half of Brazil's soy crop is now exported to China. And many of those governments and many of the agribusinesses see an almost uh, unending demand from China for feed grains. And, you know, even in the U.S., there's more export of soy and corn to China, not to feed Chinese people directly, but for these Chinese animals. And unfortunately, that story is not terribly well known and the consequences, principally ecological, but, but others on food prices, are a whole range of ways that that will affect the global environment, the global economy and the shape of the global food system.
0: I think you said that 85% of the world's soy, correct me if I'm wrong, does mm-hmm. actually go to <laughs> China to feed the animals in their intensive production systems if you've got so much soy coming from Latin America or coming from other countries in such vast quantities, can you just go into how that fluctuation in the markets as well can really affect the world? How can that kind of transaction between countries really affect the global economy? Or Yeah, sure. Uh, but just one quick correction.
1: So sure. it is that 85% is really... The global soy harvest that goes to feed livestock. So we can't say that it's eighty-five percent that is going to China alone. Um, it's it's more nationally based. Like we could say, about fifty percent of Brazil's export of soy is going to China, and is virtually all being used for livestock feed. But it isn't the case that China, just as one country, is consuming 85% of the world's soy. Okay, so it is more it is 80, 85% refers to the proportion of the global soy harvest that goes to feed livestock.
0: Flesh out a bit how this, you know, this movement around the world uh, in such a vast scale affects the world especially when we're interrupted with fluctuating prices.
1: Yes, exactly. And the prices will likely fluctuate more even with climate change, you know, just because the weather is going to fluctuate. Uh, Yes. So because China is such a large purchaser of, for example, soy and increasing amounts of corn, it can affect the global price. So let's say there's a 1% increase in the amount of soy China wants to purchase. That can make the price higher for everyone who wants to purchase soy. Now, because soy is mostly purchased for livestock, we might say, well, that's not such a bad thing. But as more land is going to be planted in soy, as well as corn, but soy is really the principal ingredient in most livestock feed, that means that you know certain landscapes that exist now, forest, grassland, will be displaced. It also means that, the, uh, there will be a stronger interest in maintaining that trade with China, right? Because it gives the producers some security to know, I'm going to sell virtually all of my harvest to China, or I'm going to sell half of it to China this year. And there can be ripples, and, and even stronger than ripples, ructions in global food prices because of the demand from China. 3CR Radio that's independent, progressive and making a difference.
0: You are tuned in to Freedom of Species. We are talking today with Mia McDonald, Executive Director of Brighter Green, a policy action tank based in New York that does great work all around the world. And we are chatting with Mia today about China and the developing exponential growth in agribusiness there and the effects that has on the world.
1: Now, I do want to say at the same time, even though China is quite quickly increasing its meat consumption, the Chinese still eat a lot of vegetables. And China's meat consumption per person is less than half of that in the United States. So there is, you know, there are sometimes the average person in China or even a more informed person in China will say, hey, you know, why are you Americans talking to us about our meat consumption and the footprint of that meat consumption, as you were explaining, you know, in terms of world food prices, land being used, land being converted to soy for export to China. So I think it is important for us, particularly those of us in industrialized countries, to remember, you know, the Chinese are not eating as much meat as the average person in the U.S. or Australia or New Zealand or even Germany is, but because China is so huge, and the change is happening quite quickly, we see large global effects. And I should just touch on your point about the land leasing or land purchasing. And this is, again, a growing phenomenon in what one could say is almost a scramble for global food security, where a number of countries, and it's not just China, it's India, it's Saudi Arabia, it's others, are looking around the globe to see where are there seemingly... Uh, available land in large quantities, where we could have our agricultural experts or have partnerships with agricultural experts in those regions produce crops on a large scale that we would grow in these countries, but then harvest and export back to the home country. And that is happening, as you indicated, a fair amount in a number of countries in Africa, as well as in Latin America, and even some in Asia uh so it's china it's korea it's india india's large investments in ethiopia actually in agricultural land for crops for horticulture not yet for livestock feed but india also has a growing livestock sector particularly poultry so there is a chance in future that grain could be grown in ethiopia which has enormous food security challenges of its own to be exported to india to be fed to livestock
0: um, so yes, China is part of that, but it's it's not the only country doing that. It's only two generations since the famine of 1959 and 60 in China, uh, where the government actually quote that peasants must have uh, two liquid meals a day, I think something to that effect. Can you explain part of the ex- exponential growth in meat and dairy intake for the Chinese You explain it as being revenge eating. Can you explain that a bit more and how much of an influence that you believe that is and how far does that status culture overshadow the fact that this diet from this agricultural model is actually bad for their health?
1: Yeah, it's a very interesting uh, phenomenon. And I need to give credit to my colleague, uh, Professor Peter Lee, who teaches at the University of Houston in the United States, who coined that phrase, that that his sense, he grew up in China and now teaches and, and lives in the United States, is that because the Chinese population for hundreds of years had really experienced food insecurity, and some of that came to a head in this great famine in the late 1950s and early 1960s. And it, it was part and parcel of some of the Maoist policies that, you know, in hindsight, scholars can see and, and people who lived through them, that they were really disastrous. But this real push for, you know, great leap forward, as as I'm sure people are familiar with to some degree, which was to turn, you know, make everything into steel and basically to chop down forests, to fuel, uh, small smelters that could melt metal into steel. And it was a, a vast failure. It didn't work. And then there was another Maoist policy. And I think the English translation is, you know, make grain a priority. And that grain, and at this point, more for people than for livestock, but should be harvested, you know, cultivated and harvested everywhere. And I just was watching a documentary showing that, you know, even lakes, were basically filled in to create more agricultural land. And, you know, thousands of people were mobilized and and effectively forced to do this through vast propaganda, but also the power of the state. And that also was, by and large, an enormous failure. You know, the rice crop was then flooded by the lake. The soil wasn't really quite good. So I think there is an important history in China of attempts to vastly increase production on an industrial scale, both to feed an internal population and I think also a competitive sense of, you know, we will catch up to the West and we won't be a nation of of peasants and, and rural population. We will in some ways show them that we can compete on a large scale. So the famine is something that even though it's still quite difficult to talk openly about it in china and to write about it even for scholars or people who lived through it it is something very present in the chinese consciousness you know many people alive today who are probably in their 30s 40s 50s now you know either knew someone uh, or heard of a relative in their extended family or had friends or communities that they lived in where people were virtually hungry all the time. There wasn't enough food, by and large, because of central policies. But we'll leave that aside for a minute. But you know, people were hungry. People had died of hunger. So I think in China, throughout the population, and certainly among the leaders, there's a sense that food security, having enough food with this really growing middle-class population is crucial. And to some degree inside the leadership, there is a sense that meat is an important part of that, that people want meat, that without enough meat, there could be social unrest. So as you mentioned, there are these pork reserves, you know, basically a strategic pork reserve of live animals and even frozen pork you know, in different parts of the country to maintain that supply. Now, whether that really is the case is open to question whether that will continue to be the case is open to question and i will say as you say there's a lot of dire things here but one quite interesting development to me is within china itself yes even as industrialization of animal agriculture is is moving along very unfortunately and again supported by Global agribusiness supported by the Chinese government, the US government, other governments with an interest in selling their agricultural products, and unfortunately showing China how to do factory farming. At the same time, there are a growing number of people in China who are asking about, well, is this really the way to produce food? Is it sustainable? Is it humane? Isn't it, as you indicated, Emma? producing a number of health problems, you know, from obesity to diabetes to heart disease to cancers that have a link to diet. So there is a growing cadre of people in China who are questioning this model. Now, what I would say, and one of the roles I see for Brighter Green is really trying to provide them with good information, good data, good examples of the real devastation of a food system based on animal agriculture that we have in the U.S., we have in Australia, we have in many parts of Europe. We can see the economic dislocation of rural communities. We can see the environmental costs. We can absolutely see the health costs. And we can see the exploitation of the animals. So I think they're encouraging... Uh, how should we say, seeds for those of us who are concerned about this issue in different parts of the world and to create stronger links with people in China. You know, individuals, organizations, researchers, even some people in the government are questioning the model. But unfortunately, this model, this very destructive model, has a lot of resources behind it, you know, financial, political, uh, marketing. And that is a big super tanker to be trying to contend with.
0: Now, uh, just last week, I noticed a, an announcement by the, the feds, is it, that in, in the US that the, the vegan diet is the way to go. If countries such as China really want to catch up with the West, so to speak, is it, if that's the the goal, you'd think that they would be able to learn from our the mistakes or what we've done and see that we... or or that unrest that you spoke of earlier, when they decide to adopt a change, there's such a big power that they would be able to uh, make that transition pretty quickly, yeah?
1: Yeah, I'd say a couple of things about that. I mean, one is there's not, you know, the information about the downsides of the way we've done things in the West in terms of food and diet and, and animal agriculture, it's not widespread in China. Um, You know, Brighter Green is working on it. We have colleagues in China working on it. There are some other organizations who are working on that as well. So I would say, yes, you know, through an internet search, some of the information is available. But unlike, I think, in the US and Australia, in Europe, where there is, uh, I would almost say a much more mainstream reexamination of this model, that is not happening in China. And again, as I mentioned before, there are just a lot of forces that are invested, have a vested interest, have a lot of profit to be made from this industrial model, even though we know it's it's absolutely not sustainable and, and not equitable. So I, so I should say that. Second thing I should say is that article you read has a very encouraging headline, but the reality is we're in the midst of a big fight over these diet guidelines where there's been some language inserted in a draft by a committee on sustainability that indicates for people's health, also for the environment, you know, a whole range of natural resources and climate change, eating less meat is a good thing to do and that one can be healthy eating a vegetarian diet, a vegan diet, a kind of low meat Mediterranean diet, as they explained it. But it is not, unfortunately, that the U.S. government by any means, is recommending a vegan diet. And this diet guidelines that are being discussed right now, and there's an open comment period until May 8th, and, and international comments are welcome. So if people are interested, I would suggest they Google uh, the U.S. dietary guidelines, and we'll likely be able to find the website where they can submit some comments in favor of that if they, if they are in favor of it. Um, that is still a, a big struggle, and it's not going to be clear where that lands probably till the fall. So unfortunately, yes, as an American, I would be really pleased if our government was more honest about the need to dramatically reduce, if not eliminate, consumption of meat and then could be a model for the rest of the world on that. Unfortunately, we're not there yet. And as you have in Australia, we have in the U.S., a very powerful livestock and feed sector and they have kicked up a lot of fuss about these dietary guidelines even though the language in those guidelines is you know it's good but it's, it's not radical by any means it's relatively um contained mm-hmm.
0: You are tuned in to Freedom of Species. We are talking today with Mia MacDonald, Executive Director of Brighter Green. Brighter Green is a public policy action tank that works to raise awareness of and encourage policy action on issues that span the environment, animals and sustainability. Let's go back to how Brighter Green, what your role is in, in these changes, if we could have some more examples. But also, can we facilitate in your answer, what is it going to take and indeed what what is already happening in your view to dismantle this destructive agribusiness model? Because there's so many, you know, like the International Fund for Africa, there's so many uh, great organisations that you collaborate with. Um, this great network of people just doing things, you know, actually getting out there, um, facilitating, organising community gardens, feeding these communities everywhere. And we don't hear about them often enough, I think, Mia. Can you give us an example if you've got one of a, a collaboration that you're involved with? I
1: probably will go back to China, although I could talk sure. about another region, but there's a lot going on with China. So to try to be brief, but. Four or five years ago, we worked with an independent Chinese filmmaker to make a film looking at this rising meat consumption in China, the growing industrialization of animal agriculture in China, and, and to really look at these very big trends that we documented in the policy research, Emma, that you referred to, but in the lives of people. So as opposed to having you know an overwhelming number, China raises and slaughters, 500 million pigs a year last year, 700 million. Well, well what does that mean? You know, who Who is promoting more consumption of pork? How are our farms being industrialized? Uh, how are people eating? How are people experiencing the changes in diet, including growth of fast food? So we worked on a documentary film that's called What's for Dinner, so made by a really terrific filmmaker named Yi, an independent Chinese filmmaker, and an all-Chinese crew, And that film has been seen in a a number of countries outside of China, but until last summer hadn't been seen in China. And there, there are various reasons for that, including funding and others. But we had a nice opportunity where one of our Brighter Green associates, who is Chinese, was going to China for a conference and could help organize a series of screenings. And we ended up, we thought we were doing six or seven screenings. We ended up doing about 35 in all different parts of China. And so through that, an online network, there's a web application or a phone application, I really should say, called WeChat. And a number of groups form, you know, just organically in different parts of China, of people who'd seen the film, were engaged by it, were intrigued by the issues and wanted to be involved at some level, you know, either showing the film to their community, you know, popularizing the film, uh, investigating some of the issues the film explores. And so we actually this year got some grant funds to continue to do that work. So to do more screenings of the film, we're actually uh, completing a screening kit now so people could show the film and their community and their university without the filmmaker or a brighter green colleague having to go to every screening because obviously China is a big country. You know, it's difficult <laughs> to go everywhere people wanted to see the film, and to uh, really animate this online group of people who are coming to these issues. Some are Buddhists. Some are concerned about animal welfare. Some are really concerned about food safety. Some are concerned about the environment. But to really try to grow that share with them information and examples and to see where that can go as a citizen movement and then also to intersect with the policy process. And, and one thing that might be of, of real interest to your uh, listeners is that these people in China are really interested in what are we doing in the U.S. about factory farming? What are people in India doing about factory farming? What are people in Australia doing about it? They really want to learn not just the data but also strategies for advocacy and for activism and so we're working on that as well now obviously china is a difficult place to be an activist you know as as, as we know that so it's a bit different than trying to raise awareness trying to protest in a in a us system or an australian system nonetheless there's a real interest in learning from other regions. So I'm really excited about that. And, and even from you know, someone like Anton Aroba from International Fund for Africa, there are things people in China could learn about how he is working on more sustainable food systems, how he's defining food security in a very practical as well as very aspirational way. So we are working to have people in different countries interact with this network in China. Um, and I think it's it's really uh, a very interesting experiment. Is it going to change China overnight? Of course not. But is it laying some groundwork for a real citizen movement? Uh, yeah, I think
0: potentially or a piece of that. In quite a few universities in China, now there are animal rights or animal welfare groups that are forming among amongst the student. That's really positive, isn't it?
1: Absolutely, yes, and I even have. We have a brighter green intern this semester. She's a student at New York University here, um, and she's from Beijing. And she was active in an animal rights group at her university in China, and is now here interning with us, and, and very interested in these issues and what she can learn in the U.S. to then bring back to China, and really, you know, amping up the networking between China and the U.S. So I think it's um, exciting, and I would just say. You know, we have done some similar linking with groups in India. In India, there's something called the Federation of Indian Animal Protection Organizations, and they're beginning to work more on farmed animal issues. So we have shared resources with them. We've done a series of videos that they are using in some of their campaigns around animal agriculture and not just vegetarianism, but veganism in India, which is which is still quite unusual.
0: fact that this has taken a few weeks to build
1: up means that it hasn't made for dramatic pictures on our TV screen each night. And I think that affects how much people pay attention to it.
0: 3CR, in-depth interviews that give a voice to the issues that are often unheard. You are tuned in to Freedom of Species. We are talking today with Mia McDonald, Executive Director of Brighter Green. Brighter Green is a public policy action tank that works to raise awareness of and encourage policy action on issues that span the environment, animals, and sustainability. Just briefly, the four solutions that you have for a sustainable food system. I didn't know that I just had four, actually. (laughs) We could add a few zeros to that.
1: You know, we have to reduce the primacy of meat and other animal products and food systems in places you know like in the industrialized countries where that has become the mainstay of our agriculture but in the global south places that are not fully fast food nations or factory farm nations i think it's really important for us to be sharing information with them and ideas and trying to work to interrupt this system being recreated there. Certainly in terms of, we mentioned earlier in the interview, things like subsidies and incentives for animal agriculture to really grow uh, and become even more embedded. It's really incumbent upon governments To look at those again and seek to remove those. And particularly with climate change. I mean, in Australia, you're feeling the effects. We're feeling it here. We have a severe drought in California and other places. You know, the agricultural systems that we take for granted now really have to be on the table and examined very carefully and I think radically reformed. Now, again, that isn't really happening. The discussion is is just at a very initial stage, but it's going to have to get um, stronger and more embedded and very quickly, I would say. Do you mean by that
0: um, that these businesses need to um, be responsible for what are currently externalised costs?
1: Yes, thank you for reminding me of that. The externalities, which is this term that's thrown around, and basically it means, you know, things that are not counted in a balance sheet. When you have the cost of a hamburger, and you know, one can go to McDonald's and it costs a dollar. The externalities are things like what was the water pollution, what was the biodiversity lost because of that hamburger, because of the way the beef that went into that hamburger, the way the cow. Was produced. So there are enormous externalities. I have a lot of it in the United States in terms of water pollution. Those should not be allowed to be external anymore. Those should be priced, they should be paid for by industry. And, you know, all the economists will tell you that would mean the price of animal products would have to really increase because it it would reflect more accurately the ecological cost of producing them. And then the consumption levels would likely decline radically because the price has risen. So, yes, the incorporating the externalities into production is very important. And then I think one of the last things, which sounds a little bit utopian, but I'm not sure it is really seeking a national conversation about these issues and also international you know in climate change fora in food security fora as you mentioned before but there has to be a way that nations really grapple with for the example in china you know how are resources being used what kind of a food system are we creating And who is going to benefit from that and who is going to lose? So I think there are ways of civil society linking with government agencies. Again, China is a more challenging place to do this, but it's not impossible. One has to be careful, you know, people in China with how they do it. But to um, really link more civil society and policymakers And, and just related to that, I think there has to be much more scrutiny of what agribusiness and particularly animal agribusiness is doing. Uh, There's, you know, enormous devastation in our own countries and countries in the global south because of the actions of these agribusinesses. And there is not a lot of scrutiny yet brought to bear on those. I think it's changing in the area of fossil fuels, right, because of climate change. But we know that livestock also has a significant impact on climate change. And so I am hopeful that campaigners that really seek to hold corporations accountable, will do more work in the area of meat and feed and other animal product consumption. And again, I would say I see a little bit more of that. Not a huge amount yet, but I think it's getting on to an agenda, which I think is encouraging.
0: How can... An Australian help the development of the Chinese movement in this area, Mia? That's a
1: good question, Emma. I mean, a good point. I think a couple, I mean, I think several things. I mean, one, there may well be uh, individuals, NGOs in China that have links with organizations in China, whether working on environment or maybe food security, maybe even more sustainable farming, where they could seek to share resources, share ideas, share facts about factory farming. With those colleagues, you, know, you can take a look at the What's for Dinner website, the film that I mentioned that we co-produced. And if you are interested in liaising or, or the listeners interested in liaising with that network of people in China, there may well be ways to do that. I also think, you know, for those of us in the industrialized world to really be scrutinizing what are the policies of our governments that are encouraging factory farming and this real obsession with feed, you know, around the world, livestock feed, to become embedded and to be a very strong focus of foreign policy. So, for example, in Australia, as in the U.S., I would imagine there's a lot of export of animal products and technologies, industrial technologies for producing animals, to China. So I think Australian activists, researchers, civil society could document more of that and could seek to hold policymakers accountable. You know, why? Why are our governments doing that when all of the research that's been done by our scientists, scientists in other countries, as well as activists, indicates this system of factory farming... Obsession with meat and feed production has so many negative consequences, enormous consequences. You know, from human rights to health to obviously the environment and the animals. To hold policymakers accountable for why would they promote at home, you know, more sustainable food systems, and yet globally and in a place like China, they are causing the absolute opposite to be created. Mm-hmm.
0: How difficult is it in China as far as advocacy is concerned? Can you just highlight a little bit more? Are they Is information not as accessible in China if you're the average citizen, if you want to become an activist in this area? How is it limited as such?
1: It changes, and I think, you know, unfortunately, I've just been reading a bit more about the uh, new Chinese president who's been there a couple of years, that there is a real crackdown. Some people are saying, you know, some China observers and scholars They haven't really seen anything like this since the Mao era in terms of really cracking down on certain forms of dissent. So the challenge is sometimes the boundaries aren't known. So, for example, you know, the WeChat groups I mentioned that we're helping, uh, you know, sort of grow in China. So far, that doesn't seem to be a problem. You know, even screening our film, What's for Dinner, um, there's nothing... I mean, yes, there's some things in it that could be construed as anti-government, but it's not an anti-government film per se, right? It's really more illuminating what's happening. That hasn't been a problem. There hasn't been any, you know, any official coming or any sense of, hey, what are you doing? What is this? But again, I don't think it's risen to, you know, sort of senior officials in the government know about the film yet. I think the challenge, Emma, is that for activists in China, they don't always know what the consequences are. So for example, something that's been in the news is there are a group of women's rights activists who are planning protests on International Women's Day, which is March 8th, against sexual harassment on China's public transit system. Now you wouldn't think of that As an issue that would really get the government upset. The fact of the sexual harassment, yes, one would hope the government would be upset. But activists trying to raise awareness of that and saying, look, this should not happen to China's women. A number of those women were arrested before the protest. So on International Women's Day or in the days leading up to it and now are being charged with quite strong uh, violations of China's law, which again, you know, human rights lawyers would say these are trumped up charges, but they may face a year, two years, three years in jail for something like that. So I don't want to paint too dire a picture. There are a number of people in China who are working on environmental issues, food safety, who are outspoken, who are doing really good research, really good work. But I think it is a difficult place to, how should we say, expect it to be like it is in the U.S. or Australia or New Zealand or other places. And as we know, there have been infringements on protesters' rights here as well. So I think it's, a, I think it's an evolving situation. In terms of the information, uh, you know, Jenny, my colleague, the filmmaker, will say, you know, if people really want to find out about factory farming, they can if they look for it. But it's not in the media. You know, it's not something even most Chinese environmental organizations are working on. So I, to me, the situation is more akin to how it was in the U.S., let's say 10, 15, 20 years ago. There were certainly people working on factory farming, trying to raise the alarm, trying to educate people. But there was very little mainstream acknowledgement of that. So I think in China... It's it's more like that. You know, the information is somewhat hidden. A lot of stuff is not translated into Chinese. I mean, I see some good reports on factory farming done by colleague organizations of mine and aren't translated into Chinese. And I think that's unfortunate. Yes, it's it's challenging to do it. It's expensive. It's time consuming. But we can't assume that everyone in the world is going to be able to read in perfect English. So I think that there are things that those of us outside of China can also be doing to get more information in Chinese to the Chinese people. And, and even Chinese environmental organizations, food safety, even animal welfare organizations could benefit from that. Thank you, Mia. Thank you, Emma. I really enjoyed it. You asked some really good questions. So, so thank you. I appreciate your time and, and your listeners' time as well and interest.
0: I'll have to approach you another time. I'm sure there will be more progress in this area. Down the track?
1: I would say, you know, sometimes I see the glass half empty on a number of days, and sometimes I see it half full. But I think the realities, particularly the environmental realities, the climate realities, are going to make this set of issues much, much more difficult to ignore. So, in that way, I'm hopeful that we are going to see much more awareness and much more attention and hopefully policy change in the coming years. So I, I would say that there's something to look forward to. So we should all try to stay healthy and alert so we can be part of that.
0: All the planets are going to align, aren't they? We're going to be cornered into this area with climate change, resources, water. We're just going to have to change, really. Yeah, it's too bad that we have to be cornered into it, right,
1: instead of being proactive. You know, people like Francis moore told us about this nineteen seventy one you know diet for a small planet came out, so I think that's unfortunate that we seem to be very reactive as societies um, but nonetheless i I do think that there will be some changes some important changes and I would just say for any of the listeners you know feel free to look at the brighter green website so it's brightergreen.org we are redoing our website so the new site should be launched soon but the but the you know existing site is up there and also feel free to be in touch with us we love to have links with people in different parts of the world and there might be projects we could work on or ideas and information we can share so i would i would definitely welcome that
0: yeah and there could be uh, helping translate some of the information into chinese Yeah, that would be great. We have some
1: good people helping us, but, you know, it's a long process. So, yes.
0: (laughs) You're on 3CR's Freedom of Species, 855 AM. That wrapped up our interview with Mia McDonald, Executive Director of Brighter Green. A news item that relates to our topic today. From stock and land, the title, Kurnow Dairy Battle Continues. Local residents are up in arms about an intensive dairy operation that's been proposed in the Bass Coast area of Victoria by Yoyu Dairy, which is a subsidiary to Ningbo China Dairy. Local residents, including farmer Alan MacDonald, said the proposal is still half-baked and lacking in transparency. They haven't got any of the expert reports needed, uh, not on environmental impacts or the economic impacts on the local community. This proposal will have significant consequences for the Bass Valley that relies on tourism. It will be a blight on the landscape and there will be enormous problems with trucks bringing in a lot of grain and tankers taking the milk out. Uh, there's a lot of problems with language. Mr McDonald said it was a poor attempt to appease the concerned residents who want the company to call a spade a spade or in this case their free stall barn is actually a feedlot. Uh, the council has planned to consider Yoyu Dairy's permit application for its Kurnow Farm at its June meeting and public submissions will be accepted until then. I have a community service announcement. The Paran Vet Clinic, I received their newsletter emails and the headline is Cats Wearing Scrunchies Saving Lives. West Australian researchers recently published encouraging results suggesting that cats wearing brightly coloured scrunchies kill far fewer birds and reptiles. But before you go looking through your drawers for that hair accessory the 90s forgot, keep in mind only scrunchies designed to fit special safety collars are advised. The wrong scrunchie could not only be unfashionable but potentially fatal if your cat gets it tangled. So if you're interested in getting a scrunchie, uh, you can just Google uh, cat scrunchies. I'd like to thank Mia McDonald, Rodrigo and Gabriella, the musicians. If you'd like to contact us, please do on info at org, Facebook, Twitter or the website. See you next week.